Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. A few years ago, I was traveling in Asia and we took a flight into one city in Asia and then another flight to a different city. And once we arrived there, we took a long bus ride out to a large lake where there was a floating village. So we got from the bus onto a boat. And as we took this boat out into the middle of the lake and the shore disappeared behind us, I think I felt as far from home as I have ever felt. And a friend I was with was even more out of her element and visibly very uncomfortable. And at one point she leaned over and said, why are we here? Right as she asked that, a tiny boat floated up alongside ours and a woman looked up at me and we locked eyes. We were about the same age and she had her son with her who was about the same age as my son back at home. And I had this profound sense of shared humanity. I felt my heart swelling beyond what I felt my body could even hold as this woman just looked right into my eyes. And I thought, I'm here because these people are real, as real as I am, and I want to know about all the people I share this planet with, not only because I'm curious and I like to learn as much as I possibly can about everything, also because I love all my spiritual siblings, not just the ones who look like me or the ones who live like me. And... Also, as I talked about on previous episodes, sometimes if we don't make meaningful connections with people beyond our communities and our comfort zones, we might unwittingly harm them. We might support a war that kills or maims them or sanctions that impoverish them. We might unthinkingly use slang that demeans them. We might support policies or vote for legislation that limits their civil rights. So connecting with others' ideas and others' lives in person and in books helps us to make more informed choices and to make bonds with our siblings in this big human family and to realize also that we are not the center of the universe. So going on those long journeys far, far away from home are sometimes the most precious experiences, even though they can be uncomfortable. So I begin this episode with that metaphor because these books that I read for these last two episodes really gave me that a similar sense of traveling farther from home than I had yet traveled sure. on this podcast. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad that I made this journey, even though it was confusing at times, uncomfortable at times. I'm so glad that I undertook this effort. And I'm so grateful to have my dear friend Matthew Nelson back for this episode to guide us in this landscape and really to guide the conversation again. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for being here again. Great to be back, but really this time surveying the wildest lands of queerdom. <laughs> Well, it's kind of validating to hear you say that, too. <laughs> um, so, Matthew, you'll remember that when we were talking about doing an episode in the in, at the very beginning, when I brought up 
doing an episode on Obergefell v. Hodges, it was you who suggested that we expand the conversation beyond marriage equality. That that wasn't on my radar at all. And you suggested some critical queer theory texts. And yeah, so I admit it was a it was a really challenging journey at some at some points. I was far from my home assumptions and beliefs and uh Again, I, I kind of thought, wait, why am I here sometimes? Like, wait, where am I? Why am I here? But again, I just had this feeling of like, oh, it's because my siblings live here. It's because other human beings, like my human family lives here. And it was just this powerful experience for me as an empathy exercise. But also it was really good for me to spend time inhabiting via these books, a queer world where queerness is central and I was the outsider. It was such a really um, powerful and valuable experience for me um, where I was the guest looking in. And um, boy, I just felt honored to have gone through that. So thank you for holding my hand on this journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, yeah. I, I too can feel disoriented, really out of sorts reading these query, queer theory texts of liberation myself. I am a cisgender male still learning how to hold my privilege. And this is a responsibility, working toward anti-racist, gender egalitarian futures. So I'm so glad that you opened up with that guiding metaphor, Amy, because I feel too that sometimes I'm out of my depths. Mm -hmm. I love queer theory. I've been studying queer theory now for two decades, but still on a personal level, it's different when it's cognitive, but on a personal level, the queer theory can really pose challenges to me. So the queer theory on offer today accosts me as a married man. Yeah. Have I capitulated to an assimilationist agenda, supplanting the true political legacy of Stonewall? <gasps> Yikes. <laughs> really? How, how yeah. might these texts... In, in, in that way, emboldened me to challenge my own assumptions of queer futures and democratic ideals. Personally, how might these texts move me off a gender performative binary to a deeper embodiment of selfhood? So all these questions loom large for me, even though I'm well acquainted with this literature and have been thinking about it for a long time. I, it's good to just realize that you're being deterritorialized in your mind and in your personal experiences. I sometimes come at these texts as if they are brand new to me. So, you know, mm -hmm. really like all good books from, I think, the good book to Karl Marx's Das Kapital and everything in between, <laughs> we really need to be shaken from the rigidity of our ideology, the rigidity of our certainty, and even the rigidity of this comfort that we fall into as much as we can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I texted Eric as I was reading a couple of these books and said, I'm asking questions I didn't even know could be questions. It's like not even <laughs> <laughs> like we're questioning foundations of things that I didn't even know existed, but then they do. And so, it, yeah, it's, it's, it is a powerful experience. Super right. Valuable. And thus, that is the point of theory. Yeah. Theory, no matter what kind of critical theory it is, it really is supposed to set us off kilter and start yeah. getting us to wonder anew, question anew, interrogate those assumptions and those beliefs so that we may break out onto the other side, I hope, 
either more confirmed the things that we believed before or thinking new thoughts. That's right. And I, and I do, I'm glad you brought that up. And I do sometimes say this, but I need to maybe say it more and just reassure listeners, like, you don't have to believe anything you hear on this podcast, right? I mean, right. just like any book I read, even on this podcast, there are going to be parts of it that in the end, I look back and think, I, I'm not convinced, but I understand why I'm not convinced in a more complete way. Or I am convinced well and then said. I learned something that I didn't know before. So it's a win either way, right? Really well said. Thanks. Okay, so let's dig in. We're going to just really quickly talk about the author. So, Or, or rather, I'll give um, a little bit of a map. Today, we're going to be just talking about Michael Warner's book, The Trouble with Normal. And then in the fourth and final episode of this series, we'll take on Lee Edelman and his book, No Future, and Jose Esteban Munoz in his book, Cruising Utopia. But for today, we'll do Michael Warner, and I'll offer just a, a short bio so we know who this author is. Michael Warner is considered one of the founders of queer theory. He was born in 1958, and he received two Master of Arts degrees, one from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and one from Johns Hopkins University. He received his PhD in English, also from Johns Hopkins University, in 1986. And he is an American literary critic, social theorist, and a professor of English literature and American studies at Yale University. And he's still there. He's currently a professor at Yale, is my understanding. So with that short bio, I'll turn really the content of this this conversation over to you, Matthew, since you have so much experience with queer theory and have read this book, I think, multiple times. So I'll pop in now and then with questions, but I'd love you to take the lead and just acquaint us with this work. Perfect. Well, thank you, Amy. And let's all get out of the cold of orthodoxy and head back into my classroom in A246. <laughs> There's a plate of warm chocolate chip cookies at the table for you. Mm, Use favorite. a napkin. We are in the time of COVID, right? Take one, <laughs> sit, relax, but don't get comfortable because no one will be comfortable tackling this queer theory today. I guarantee it. Um, and as you can see on the whiteboard, this is what I do in my classroom. Our yeah. essential question for today's lesson is the following. To what extent do marriage and the family rely on patriarchy in modern American culture? And I know that this is a question that has been taken up before in this podcast. But how are LGBTQ people subverting patriarchy in demanding equality in these institutions or, here's the key phrase, spurning them outright. So, first, as a history teacher's want to do, let's contextualize our conversation today. Let's really try to anchor ourselves in the historical context to set our queer theory conversation. Now, if you remember from the last episode, we were talking about the fledgling queer rights movement and how it was broken up into two camps. The first camp being the assimilationists with the homophiles in the post-war era, particularly in the 1950s and early 1960s, and the liberationists, who we said were bohemians, often people of color, who were violently pushing back against police brutality, entrapment, and, and other things. So they started to conceive 
of a much more radical way of being in the world, being queer in the world. And Stonewall is given that pride of place as being the event which marks queer liberation before persecution and now possessed of a somebodyness, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're pushing now into the future with a sense of our own dignity, uh, self-respect, and we are vowing for equal rights. That gave way to the 1970s of queer libertinism, of free love, and of political mobilization and a sense that we really can do anything in this world. In fact, we've got such a gift to offer the world that even the heteronormative society itself will want to have a little bit more of what we have. And so we will transform the way that human beings are in the world. We are evolving humanity. And that's where we are at in the 1970s until the 1980s when HIV AIDS drops down like a big old bomb from a plane and shatters a very confident, a visionary community. So we want to think about why did the queer liberation movement embrace relatively conservative institutions as its chief political priorities? Was it just because HIV AIDS was just so world changing that people went back into their shelves and we cried uncle and we said, fine, we'll just go along to get along. We'll do whatever it takes to be accepted by society. Was it that or was it something else? So let's dig into this historical question a little bit. Initially, the gay rights movement is focused on non-discrimination ordinances, sexual orientation recognition in hate crimes statutes. And Domestic partnership benefits in corporate America and in public jobs in big cities. This becomes, in the 1970s, what everybody is focused on. Great. So we are inching toward a much more revolutionary posture here. But, as I said, HIV AIDS overwhelms so much of the political agenda of what historians call the long 1980s, from 1981 to 1996. So, yes... With the rise of ACT UP and militant gay rights organizations and HIV AIDS rights organizations, there is a sense that our backs are our backs are up against the wall and we've got to fight for our lives because the government is derelict in its duty to respond to this public health, health crisis. They think it's just a gay disease that doesn't affect straight people, so we don't need to worry about it, at least... Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, does not feel like there is much political cachet that he can generate by championing the cause of the early victims of HIV-AIDS, not really understanding that this is a disease that affects everybody. And of course, this will go on to affect lots of heterosexual people in the United States. It will become a pandemic where just... A decade later, Africa will become overwhelmed with HIV AIDS, affecting more straight folk than queer folk. So it really is off the radar of the U.S. government and international governments. And LGBTQ people have to fight for their lives. And, and so they do. All of their energy, all their thought is, is concentrated in survival. And that only makes sense for any student of Abraham Maslow. 
So remember, coincidentally here, we have also the concomitant rise of the religious right. This is paralleling the rise of the queer liberation movement of the 1970s and 1980s. And it's no coincidence. They tend to sort of feed off each other and fight each other. And that's how they gain such prominence, both gain such prominence in society. Intuitively, one would think that the top priorities would be employment and housing discrimination protections. Perhaps LGBTQ people would have foregrounded such things had AIDS not ravaged the community. But, you know, we know this history and, and it didn't. So is it just because of this plague that LGBTQ people decided to sidestep a more liberationist agenda for a more assimilationist agenda? Well, yes and no. Two very interesting ideological critiques also assisted keeping marriage equality off gay rights activists' agenda in the 1980s, and I want to point to them. Number one, there was a rift in the LGBTQ community, which we've already alluded to. There was this assimilationist camp and this liberationist camp, and they're fighting against each other, and they can't come to consensus on which should win out. We've already talked about it extensively, so we don't need to spend a lot of time with the first one. The second one is how second wave feminism, including women lawyers who were raised in second wave feminism, they were helping newly out lesbians who had just been divorced from their husbands and wanted custody of their biological children. They made the argument that marriage was created to subjugate women. Mm. Therefore, the goal of queer family law, I mean, such as it was back in the 1980s, should not be to gain access to this patriarchal institution, but to advocate for state recognition of what they called, quote, multiple families, different permutations of forming a family. And that might include like partnerships, single parents, co-parent adoptions, and any of the multiplicity of communal living that you can imagine. This is why domestic partnerships, like the law passed in Vermont in 2000, become the initial compromise within gay rights groups and between liberals and conservatives. People can make peace with a domestic partnership because they reason that it's not really meddling with the time-tested historical definition of marriage between one man and one woman will give people a domestic partnership, which will include some of the rights, privileges, obligations of marriage, but not all. It's uh, marriage light. It's, um, you know, it, it's something. And we can feel good. Liberal politicians can go to bed feeling like they've done something for the LGBTQ community without really having to ruffle the feathers of social conservatives who see that marriage equality, of course, would end civilization as we know it. So that is the reason why, in part, marriage equality is not embraced in the 1980s but also why we don't really see a wholesale acceptance of traditional family goals from queer rights in the 1980s. But something curious happens in 1990 in Hawaii. 
local activists quite apart from any professional advocacy group, including the state chapter of the ACLU, won a victory at the Supreme Court in 1993. No one saw this coming. No Hmm. one thought this was possible. Folks, we are talking about 1993. Mm -hmm. I remember it. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. All over the news. People were talking about it a lot. Yeah. Well, and and for good reason, actually, the LDS Church in Utah is one of the first to recognize what has happened. These Mm. six couples sue the state for marriage rights, and unexpectedly, the court rules in their favor. Mm -hmm. This takes a while to get to the mainland. No one's really talking about this. The LDS Church, however, Mm. is the first to mobilize opposition against these couples in Hawaii. They recruit the Roman Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, and other what they call co-belligerents in the fight against liberalism. Mm -hmm. So they, that is the LDS Church and their, quote, co-belligerents, are fearful that a same-sex marriage in Hawaii would have to be recognized in Utah. So it's not just limited to the state of Hawaii. They think that this is a slippery slope, that marriage equality could overtake the entire country. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they were right. <laughs> and they were right. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. No one says that the LDS church isn't intelligent, right? Yeah. Isn't prophetic. <laughs> they are prophetic. Exactly. Right. Yep. So they are ultimately successful. This is where the Defense of Marriage Act really comes from. It starts here. Religious conservatives make opposition to marriage equality a defining issue of the 1996 primary, and the federal DOMA advances to Bill Clinton's Oval Office desk, um, and, and he signs it. So by 1998, Hawaii passes a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. So individual states also take the opportunity to pass their own little mini state DOMAs. So you have the federal DOMA, and then you have the state DOMAs. Hmm. And this is why I say that conservatives set the agenda for the queer liberation movement with their culture war priorities. Same-sex marriage and banning open service in the military leads to this DAT compromise, but ultimately channels queer energy. Because, of course, like by 1996, you have the cocktail, this Hmm. protease inhibitor cocktail drug, which helps gay men and straight folk come back to life. I mean, they're, they're as good as dead because of HIV AIDS, but what they called the Lazarus effect, people coming back from the dead because of this cocktail of drugs that brings people who thought that they were in this inevitable slide into the grave. All of a sudden in 1996, because of the cocktail drugs, these protease inhibitors combination, they're now coming back to life. So now they're alive and they're thinking about their futures And it's kind of intuitive and obvious that you would want marriage and you would want the protections that marriage would offer. So they channel this energy, those that is the conservatives, into hijacking queer liberation to be about these conservative institutions of marriage and and the military. Okay. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important to appreciate how it is that initially you've got this house divided, assimilationists and liberationists, and then you've got the second wave feminists and the lesbians saying, no, because of patriarchy, we are done with marriage. Mm. So it trips out of the gate. Mm. But ironically, because 
the same, very same reason HIV AIDS stalled queer liberation, it also feeds into this conservative energy to pursue marriage equality as a political goal of queer politics. Mm, yeah, so interesting. So that is the first thing that we, we want to solidify. The second is to really frame our conversation today, Amy. We, we really need the audience to grasp two essential terms. These terms will be important for today and for the next episode as well. The first will be familiar to the audience given the last episode. Heteropatriarchal normativity, what we were calling heteronormativity. This is, as a reminder, pervasive and invisible norms of heteropatriarchy that underpin our society. Again, we talked at length about this in the last episode. But adding on to that is a philosophical term, temporality. This is the social organization of time. And speaking about heteropatriarchy, and temporality, if we put them together, if we synthesize them, what we mean is that there is a temporality that turns on traditional family relations, heterosexuality, and reproduction. Now, I understand it's probably still a little foggy, a little wet cement at this point. So let's get a little bit more concrete, go a little deeper here. This concept speaks to the social construction of a life a whole life in heteronormative culture, soup to nuts, birth to death, and everything in between. Social scripts, stories, and myths that we have co-created and we've socially constructed as a society, rites of passage and rituals, norms and expectations, all of these things shape how a young person should proceed throughout their life. And we take for granted that all of these things exist. They so enrich our lives, they so saturate our lives, that we don't even know that this process of acculturation is occurring from the earliest moments of our human existence. It all is oriented around what constitutes the good life. How can we live a great life? Well, we have all of these people and all of these technologies and devices around us to tell us what constitutes the good life. This is where heteronormative temporality comes in. Heteronormative temporality teaches and reinforces this through a series of celebrated milestones, which may include all of the following. For instance, coming of age rituals. Things that come to my mind are bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, quinceañeras, sweet 16 parties, um, all of those things. And, and baby showers, anniversaries, retirement, and funerals, all these things. This is heteronormative temporality. And you might say, but wait, no, that's just life. Why are you calling it heteronormative temporality? Well, again, that's because we just take it all for granted. This is the way it is. Therefore, this is the way it should always be. Duh. That's just how it is. Well, no, if we actually name it as an option, and then we might consider, hey, we could have different options. We could, we could socially construct different ways of ordering our lives, marking important moments in our lives. And they don't need to have these milestones that are celebrated. We don't need to have those. So this heteronormative temporality that I'm talking about is really on full display in our film culture. 
everywhere you look from some of the ones that come to my mind when Harry met Sally. I don't know if you have watched that film Mm -hmm. to Bridesmaids Mm -hmm. to For Your Kids or You Yourself, Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. These movies have reinforced heteronormative temporality. This is why we receive all of the concerns and all of the pressures of our lives as just kind of normal because these ideas have been reinforced so aggressively and so pervasively all around us. Now, recently, that heteronormative temporality has been complex, complexified, problematized, disturbed. Even movies have been involved in this. Movies that question such normative temporality even, I would say, actively critiquing and deconstructing it. Think about the movie Mulan or Boys in the Band. I Mm -hmm. can also think of Moonlight or Love, Simon. Mm -hmm. These are popular movies that call into question whether heteronormative temporality should be adopted wholesale or even adopted at all. That is a relief that we are starting to think critically about the ways that we live our lives, the way that we order it so that we think we're living a good life. Now, what if we were to imagine queer temporality? How might queer temporality radically recreate the world which we now inhabit? In fact, how do our authors over the next two episodes understand queer temporality differently vis-a-vis heteronormative temporality. These are the questions that we're going to investigate together. We're going to proceed through this queer theory chronologically. As we said in the last episode, we'll start with Michael Warner, The Trouble with Normal, Sex, Politics, and the Ethics of Queer Life, which was published in 1999 through Harvard University Press. And then we'll go on to Edelman and Jose Esteban Munoz. Okay. Conservatives, gay assimilationists, such as Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan, both gay men, spent the 1990s and 2000s arguing that LGBTQ people should try to be as, quote, normal as possible, especially if they expect to win equal rights and respect in U.S. society. Culminating in the right to marry, these gents suggested we no longer be marginalized, but be fully American, fully free. We just had to fit in. We just had to be normal. Professor Warner argued in this book that marriage equality is the wrong goal for queer politics and activism. In his analysis of various discourses, and even some political, ethical, and aesthetic discourses that emerge out of the gay and lesbian community, he says that these discourses stigmatize sex work, various fetishes, polyamory, people living with HIV, and various non-normative, non-traditional families that Society tends to just stigmatize, marginalize, and either heap all sorts of derision on or just want to forget all about. He argues that by participating with the state in elevating certain relationships, in this case, marriage relationships, this inevitably denigrates domestic partnerships, non-traditional families, 
and broad-based legal and financial protections for all vulnerable people in society, gay, straight, queer, uh, whatever, that, that this agenda really stultifies our ability to have a universal scope in bringing everybody into the human family, into the American experience, into citizenship and saying, you matter too, and we're going to help and support you all along the way. He urges LGBTQ people to abandon the pursuit of normalcy and fight for a queer planet of radical, universal prosperity and relational uh, affirmation. He says that at the heart of this new thrust, this libertarian thrust, this queer liberation is sexual libertinism. For Warner, being sexually free is kind of a synecdoche for ultimate freedom everywhere else. Sexual libertinism is central to his utopic vision of queer activism. But also, ethical, political, and social transformation looms large for him too. All right. So... Now let's let's get into this text. It's a really provocative text. Sometimes it gets a little R-rated. Sometimes it gets even a little X-rated. You're like, where am I going? How did I end up in a gay bathhouse in San Francisco, right? Um, yep. That's just where we're at with Michael Warner. All right. So we're, we're going to dive into his argument here. And, and Amy, I'm going to enlist you to read some of our passages as we proceed through, okay? Okie doke. Yep. Okay. So as we had planks in the Obergefell decision, we'll look at planks in the argument for Michael Warner and the argument he's building here. Um, So Michael Warner initially says that patriarchy enforces heteronormative temporality with the tool of shame. And LGBTQ people are implicated in this regime of heteronormative temporality. We shame each other. Sometimes our most piercing wounds can come from each other. And subsequently, we inflict wounds on ourselves through a kind of internalized homophobia. Okay? So let's look at shame. Michael Warner, Michael Warner wants us to fixate on shame as one of these catalytic principles in heteronormative temporality. So we're going to turn to page eight here. Amy, would you read our text for us? Mm-hmm. He says, quote, almost all children grow up in families that think of themselves and all their members as heterosexual. And for some children, this produces a profound and nameless estrangement, a sense of inner secrets and hidden shame. No amount of adult quote-unquote acceptance or progress in civil rights is likely to eliminate this experience of queerness for many children and adolescents. Later in life, they will be told that they are closeted as though they have been telling lies. They bear a special burden of disclosure. No wonder so much of gay culture seems marked by a primal encounter with shame. End mm. quote. And experientially... I do know this all too well, especially when I consider the myriad stories that I've heard from other queer folk about how shame led them to self-harm or Mm -hmm. shame led them to discount certain paths in life or certain careers because they just didn't think that they were going to be 
measuring up or that someone would find them out. Shame has so colored many of LGBTQ experiences. I think Marco Warner is really right here that we cannot progress in radical queer politics unless we reckon with this large white elephant, this rainbow colored elephant in the room, right, of, of shame. Um, mm-hmm. He goes on in, in page 24 to 25 to say, failing to recognize that there is a politics of sexual shame, I believe, leads to mistakes in each context. It confuses individuals, cowing them out of their sexual dignity. It leaves national politics pious and disingenuous about sex. And it reduces the gay movement to a desexualized identity politics. He says, we've got to put the sex back in homosexuality, people. We have got to see, first of all, (laughs) that politicians, like the rest of society, are leading more colorful sex lives than they would like to admit. And everybody's doing it. Or if not everybody, a lot of people are doing it, especially the quote unquote straight community. They're not talking about it. They're able to pass without having to talk about it. Gay people feel like they shouldn't talk about it either, even if they are dabbling in more, shall we say, radical queer sexual experiences Uh, because they want to sanitize the gay movement. They want to bourgeoisize the (laughs) gay movement. They want to show it as respectable as, quote, normal. Just a, as Warner says here, a desexualized identity politics. Mm -hmm. Warner's argument is that we all have to come out of the closet about all these very interesting sex lives that we live and realize that there's actually nothing called quote unquote normal about sex at all, about our sex lives, about your neighbor's sex life, about anybody. Alfred Kinsey actually popularized this notion back in the mid uh, 19th century, uh, sorry, the mid 20th century rather, when he discussed the very colorful sex lives of everybody in the United States. And some of the things were fabricated but he interviewed hundreds of people for his book and concluded that people's sex lives are a whole lot more eyebrow raising than <laughs> uh, you believe, that I believe, that we like to think about each other and about our society. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I digress. Warner says in later chapters, we will see how the politics of shame distorts everything from marriage law to public health policy, censorship, and even urban zoning. I also argue that the official gay movement, by which I mean its major national organizations, its national media, its most visible spokespersons, has lost sight of that politics, becoming more and more enthralled by respectability. Instead of broadening its campaign against sexual stigma beyond sexual orientation, as I think it should, again, this is Warner speaking, Warner writing, it has increasingly narrowed its scope to those issues of sexual orientation that have least to do with sex. Repudiating its best histories of insight and activism, it has turned into an instrument for normalizing gay men and lesbians. So... Professor Warner says to us, we have got to reclaim sex 
and all of its permutations, we've got to put away shame. That is what is he ask, That is what he is asking of us in this first part. Now, the second plank he lays down, this is Warner contending that LGBTQ politics, as with the fight for marriage equality, is enthralled to heteropatriarchal temporality, going back to that concept we introduced at the top of the episode. Amy, could you read from pages 47 to 48 what Warner intends for us to mean by the fact that we are all hypnotized by heteropatriarchal temporality? (laughs) Yes, I will. He says, quote, Try to imagine that heterosexuality might be irrelevant to the normative organization of the world. People are constantly encouraged to believe that heterosexual desire, dating, marriage, reproduction, childbearing, and home life are not only valuable to themselves, but the bedrock on which every other value in the world rests. Heterosexual desire and romance are thought to be the very core of humanity. It is the threshold of maturity that separates the men from the boys, though it is also projected onto all boys and girls. It is both nature and culture. It is the one thing to which every politician pays obeisance, couching every dispute over guns and butter as an effort to protect family, (laughs) home, and children. What would a world look like in which all these links between sexuality and people's ideals were suddenly severed? Non-standard sex has none of this normative richness, this built-in sense of connection to the meaningful life, the community of the human, the future of the world. It lacks this resonance with the values of public politics, mass entertainment, and mythic narrative. It matters to people primarily in one area of life, when it brings queers together. Gay political groups owe their very being to the fact that sex draws people together and that in doing so, it suggests alternative possibilities of life, end quote. Okay. So that's some pretty radical queer theory that he is is suggesting here that instead of marginalizing non-standard sexual behavior and practices, actually, by engaging in those things, you are actually engaging in a political act. And this reminds me, Amy, of the controversy that occurred in the 1980s, when in Los Angeles and San Francisco and in New York, the mayors of those cities said, we've got to shut the bathhouses down. Mm -hmm. The bathhouses were a place where gay men could congregate and have anonymous sex or personal sex with whomever they wanted. And it was one big erotic free for all. (laughs) Well, if HIV AIDS is transmitted through these uh, diseases in sex, then it's quite logical that we would want to shut the bathhouses down as a certain, a certain vector that proliferates HIV AIDS and other venereal diseases. So there was a, debate in the queer community. Should we shut the bathhouses down? Why would that even be a debate? If this anonymous sex is in part the reason why HIV AIDS is flourishing, and we could also say in the straight community with hookup culture Mm -hmm. and quote unquote promiscuous sex, they too are passing the virus or other venereal disease around, wouldn't it make sense if we just shut sex down or we just Mm -hmm. shut 
these uh, forums in which sex could just be engaged in as if you were on a playground playing at an amusement park riding all the rides, right? Like, why wouldn't we just shut these things down? Well, the gay community said, look, for millennia, we were told that we were sick and sinful. And for one of the first times in human history, we're told, no, it's actually permissible for consenting adults to experience pleasure together. And so we're going to celebrate that. And through the 60s and 70s and the 80s, this is exactly what some, not all, by the way, but what some men decide for themselves that they would like to do. And it's not just a matter of sex, of pleasure, but it's also a matter of political revolution that through anal intercourse or through blowjobs that you are actually engaging in politics, that you are standing up for your dignity and your right as a self-determining citizen of the United States of America to enjoy life, to enjoy sexual pleasure with another adult in a way that makes you feel fulfilled. And so they say, well, there are risks associated with keeping the bathhouses open. Think about what the bathhouses are as a symbol of our liberation. We don't want to shut the bathhouses down. And Again, the assimilationists say, no, we definitely need to shut all the bathhouses down. The liberationists say, nope, we should keep them open. It is our political destiny, and this is going to be a tool to achieve that liberation that we are after. But if we go back to the text here with Michael Warner saying that gay political groups owe their very being to the fact that sex draws people together and that in doing so it suggests alternative possibilities of life. What he's saying there is we need to reject heteronormative temporality and what we need to envision, what we need to co-create and socially construct together is a new queer temporality or queer temporalities and allow those to run like rabbits in our world. So by implication, then, Warner is suggesting that LGBTQ politics allowed its thinking to get too small by making marriage equality its priority because the normalcy agenda held sway. Marriage equality became the be-all, end-all agenda item. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't read Warner as saying marriage equality shouldn't be one legitimate goal for the queer community to strive, to strive after, but that the 21st century queer activist gamut should have been a grander one that would have secured freedom and protections for a multiplicity of alternative possibilities of life. Mm-hmm. Not just one that adheres itself to heteronormative temporality. And that is exactly what marriage is, right? Mm-hmm. Marriage is the cornerstone of heteronormative temporality. Mm-hmm. So this leads us back to the question we were asking before. How did what Warner is characterizing as an ill-fated quest for normalcy become a predominating preoccupation for queers? Amy, could you read that passage on page 53? Yes. He says, quote, what immortality was to the Greeks, what virtu was to Machiavelli's prince, what faith was to the martyrs, what honor was to the slave owners, what glamour is to drag queens, normalcy is to the contemporary American. Of course, people want individuality as well, but they want their individuality to be the normal kind. And given the choice between the two, they will take normal. 
but what exactly is normal? End quote. Great. Thank you. And I mean, that question I think is perennial. I have this conversation with my teens all the time because teens, they just want to fit in. It's Mm -hmm. part of adolescent psychology. They don't want to stand out in any way. And a way to make teens feel more comfortable in their skin and allow them to flourish in their individuality is just to really undermine the very notion of normal and ask, well, do we really think that people are normal and who's normal and who's abnormal and what makes them normal or wait, what makes someone abnormal? We really try to investigate this. And I'm so glad that Warner brings it up here by asking what exactly is normal. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to page 59 and Amy, would you read that for us? Yep. He says, quote, So it is ironic to say the least when we are now told that our aspiration should be to see ourselves as normal. No doubt gay people regard this as the ultimate answer to the common implication that being gay is pathological. No, they want to insist we are normal, but this is to buy into a false alternative. The church tells us that our choice is to be saved or be damned. But of course, it might be that these are not the only options, any more than Democrat and Republican need be the only options in politics. Just so, normal and pathological are not the only options. One of the reasons why so many people have started using the word queer is that it is a way of saying we're not pathological. But don't think for that reason that we want to be normal. (laughs) So succinct. People who are defined by a variant set of norms commit a kind of social suicide when they begin to measure the worth of their relations and their way of life by the yardstick of normalcy. The history of the movement should have taught us to ask, whose norm? End quote. Oh, man. Yeah, it packs a punch. It's really, really succinct. And like I said, like... Uh, yeah, it's asking questions. Hopefully listeners are can see what I was talking about. It's asking questions I've never asked before. And he makes really interesting arguments, right? I mean, yeah, yeah really, I, really caused huh. me to ask questions about all of the all of the structures that we inherit and my choices within them. Yeah, Even the I ones mean, I've always taken for granted. Yeah, you know, I, I think even for me, as a gay man, this really cuts to the quick for me too. One book that I read in the late aughts that resonated with me along these lines, written more for a baby boomer gay man than a Gen Yer like myself, was Alan Downs's Velvet Rage, Overcoming the Rage mm-hmm. of Growing Up Gay in a Straight Man's World. And I would recommend this, especially for boys and men who are listening to this podcast, whether you're queer or straight, get a copy of Alan Downs's Velvet Rage and read it. It is so illuminating, even providing epiphanies every 20 pages or so. It's really quite a good book. So um, mm. yeah, I, I, I recommend it, especially if uh, your listening audience wants a, a penetrating psychological treatment of the topics we have been discussing throughout these episodes, they can't do better than this text. I would argue it needs a little bit of updating for uh, Gen Yers and, and Gen Zs, but yeah, it's it's a really great book. But in Downs's book, he suggests that gay boys mask their secrets by overcompensating, proving their masculinity in sports, striving to be the best student, trying to be a model Christian, Catholic, or Mormon, Mm -hmm. 
I, I see this in my own practice in schools where mm -hmm. you must try to conceal at all costs the secret that you're hiding because mm -hmm. to be unmasked as effeminate or to be unmasked as not living up to the standard society has set for you to be a man or to be heterosexual is a fate worse than death even. So got to hide it at all costs. So I, I remember on our previous episode when we were talking about conversion therapy, trying to you know rehabilitate gay people, and, and you pointed out that sometimes the perpetrators of this terrible practice turned out to be gay themselves. And mm. I thought, I mean, that it, this is, to me, it would make a lot of sense that it's this internal, like self-loathing that they're externalizing, trying to like stamp out the gayness in somebody else because they have this internalized homophobia. And then, and then they're really trying to show like how much they disavow um, homosexuality. That's what comes to my mind when I hear this. That's absolutely true and consistent with my personal experience, hmm. for sure. And and speaking personally, this is why this really cuts to the quick for me. Queer people, queer boys are really driven to try to outshine the rest because we want that aura. We want that glow to distract hmm. people from detecting the secret deep inside of ourselves. Hmm. So we try to cover for our perceived shortcomings in gender and sexuality by overcompensating in these other areas of life. And I have met many gay men whose early life was characterized by this singular mission to demonstrate one's worthiness through success to distract from this secret that they were trying to hide. So- hmm. When Warner speaks of an aggressive drive to be normal, I actually think he's understating things. For many gay men, myself included, we have been driven to be the best, not just normal. When it comes to heteronormative temporalities, we want to demonstrate that we can run the life cycle better than any straight guy out there, right? <laughs> and I know I might be off the mark by saying this, but... I have met a whole lot of successful Mormons in my life, people who have been affiliated with the LDS church. And I can't help but think that as a way to cover for the early LDS history of polygamy and other things that were considered mm -hmm. suspect to mainstream American culture, mm -hmm. that Mormons are also trying to outrun this reputation by being the greatest and the best mm -hmm. and being so squeaky clean that no one can, can impeach their character or their professionalism. Is that true? Yeah, Would you say that's studied, true, Amy? Actually, it is. Yeah? Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a part of our culture for sure. Yeah. Amy Chua, actually, the author that wrote The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother a few years ago, she's a professor at Yale, and she wrote a book a few years ago called, I think it was The Triple Package, that listed a bunch of different social groups, including a couple of different religions and some immigrant groups. It's a pretty controversial book, actually, but it included Mormons. And her thesis was that she attributed the success of all of these different groups to three different features. And I think one was like impulse control, like self-discipline. And one was a type of superiority complex, funny enough. And then one was insecurity, just like you just said. So that was in Amy Chua's book. 
for sure. And then I've also seen that in my life. I think especially Mormon men feel that pressure to not only be, you know, quote unquote normal, but also to excel kind of to overcompensate maybe for, you know, different perceptions that people have about Mormons and, you know, not being accepted in society and our history and whatever. But I'm curious for you, Matthew, back to the topic about what marriage means. I'm curious about you personally and what you thought about marriage as a mark of, again, you know, normalcy, quote unquote, what it meant to be normal. Um, Before I got married, I had to think about whether I wanted to be Married, I, I, you know, given that such a, a milestone was another credential of the heteronormative temporality, was I just putting marriage on my resume here? Now, mm. of course, I do believe I got married for love, but Warner is challenging me here to think about how my marriage might also be a site of resistance to patriarchy and for liberation for all LGBTQ people. I, I'm not willing to go along with Warner insofar as he's saying that marriage is really a stumbling block or a rut to ultimate LGBTQ liberation. And I don't know if he's saying that either. Um, But I do think that he's suggesting that I took on a big responsibility in marrying. And he may be personally skeptical, skeptical about whether marriage equality will really deliver the expansive queer liberation he yearns for, I still hold out hope that LGBTQ people by inhabiting the institution of marriage will really be able to expand it to be more humanizing, to be less patriarchal, to be more life-giving for all people who decide, choose for themselves to participate in it. And of course, you don't need to. Even if you are in a committed relationship, no one need get married, gay married or straight married. Mm -hmm. Um, But- that's that's how I am reading Warner here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, I had the same um, takeaways from this, and I did ask questions all the way through, which we don't need to talk about really. But this came up actually in all of the queer theory that we read, where I had this recurring question, and especially with like um, Munoz's title, and it came up in Warner too, where he talks about utopia a lot. And so my question to you is what. What would it look like, especially specifically for LGBTQ people? What would it look like to set aside adherence to heteropatriarchal temporality? What does that look like? Well, well, good. Yeah, you're right. All of our queer theory authors take this up to one extent or another. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, let's try to dip into Warner here. Let Warner speak for himself, given the fact that this is a study of his text. So on page 75... He says, were we to recognize the diversity of what we call sexuality with a kind of emphatic realism in which many queers are unsurpassed, (laughs) prolific even, the result would not be separatism and could not be because it would give us no view of who we are apart from the fact that there are a lot of non-normative sexualities in the world. You know, actually, it reminds me of what Soren Kierkegaard said of the church of his day, Amy, hearkening back to your story. Soren Kierkegaard, in trying to wrestle through a Christian ethic that he could authorize, he said, I am not for laxity, nor am I for severity. I'm simply for honesty. Mm -hmm. And I hear Kierkegaard 
in what Warner's saying. He's saying there's so much subterfuge out there. There's there's so much covering and hiding about what our sexuality is like. If we could all collectively come out of the closet about how strange and mystifying, oftentimes confusing our sexual desires are, and even our sexual practices might be, then we're creating some space for people to start to talk to one another that he believes leads to a queer utopia, to queer uh, temporalities that give people more agency, give them more freedom, give them more self-actualization. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, I, it's sort of like Warner's envisioning a multiverse, if you will, mm. of temporalities that are considered valid to explore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Another question. I'm wondering specifically what straight people can learn from queer temporalities, because he brings this up too, that there's like this opportunity for straight people to benefit from these revolutions that he wants to happen, right? So so what could straight people learn from queer temporalities or queer ways of being? And then kind of like I alluded to a minute ago, like how would that influence our understanding of marriage in general? Great. Well, an image just came to mind of Marsha P. Johnson, who was an African-American transvestite who was one of the ones involved in the initial actions in Stonewall pushing back against police brutality. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of, I just, I, I just imagine um, uh, this person saying, we are going to bring a new world to this quote unquote straight community. We are going to offer the rest of the world a new way of being human. And I'm really glad that Warner goes into great detail about what that might be looking like, because it's one thing to reject something. We just reject heteronormative temporalities. Well, it's actually worked for a lot of people over time. So you don't want to reject that out of hand so easily. You really should have something to replace it. So let's go to page 116 and let's read what Warner is saying about what queer temporalities could look like. He writes, the impoverished vocabulary of straight culture tells us that people should be either husbands and wives or non-sexual friends. Marriage marks that line. It is not the way many queers live. If there is such a thing as a gay way of life, it consists in these relations, a welter of intimacies outside the framework of professional institutions and ordinary social obligations. Straight culture has much to learn from it and in many ways has already begun to learn from it. Queers should be insisting on teaching these lessons. Instead, the marriage issue, as currently framed, seems to be a way of denying recognition to these relations of streamlining queer relations into the much less troubling division of couples from friends. And I do find this very intriguing because what he's saying here is that sexuality and sexual relations should be much more free-flowing, liquid, circular, that friends become lovers and lovers can become friends within marriage, outside of marriage, but that 
Sexuality and sexual energy is something that we all can partake in, each one of us with each other, so long as there are ethics involved, there are ground rules, there are boundaries, and people are clear through their communications about what those boundaries are, that we could usher in a new way of being human through the erotic nature in all of us. <laughs> he wants us to think bigger than our current monogamous sexual experiences or relationships or marriage itself. Mm -hmm. And that is a hard saying, as we say in spiritual circles and biblical circles, that is a hard saying to a lot right. of traditional folk. It is. And even for me, like we've, we've done episodes on like our bodies ourselves and even with like Kate Millett's sexual politics, we, as we were getting into the 1970s and we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about, especially from the point of view of women about our sexual shame, about our shame, about our bodies. And we talked about in the awakening about, you know, patriarchal marriage and women feeling stuck and oppressed. And yet then, I mean, yeah, to, to say, okay, then what, like, I know that this puritanical approach to sexuality and patriarchal, you know, really male dominant marriage has really, really harmed people. The way I was raised with hasn't worked for like lots and lots of people. So I do think that ne there needs to be something different. But you're right. It's very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable to to open that up and see what that would look like. I don't know. Yeah, it is a veritable Pandora's box. Um, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, when you consider that, according to some studies, marriages, that is traditional heterosexual, quote unquote, monogamous marriages, are engaged in some form of, quote, infidelity to 40 to 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. The date is there. Now, mm -hmm. if it happens in secret, no one talks about it, do right. you still have a monogamous relationship? That means that 40 to 50% of straight couples are already engaging in quasi-queer sexuality, if you will. Mm -hmm. What Warner is talking about here, except actually I would argue it's not queer at all because it is not adhering to the ethical standards by mm -hmm. which he's arguing we should all live up to. There's a book out there. I've only read portions of it, but it's called Ethical Slut. And the <laughs> author enumerates these principles by which, and of course, slut shaming is this tool of the patriarchy. And we want to stay away from that language. But I think the authors here are re-signifying slut and trying mm -hmm. to move us to a place where we can see that quote unquote promiscuity or free love um, can actually be quite redeemable. In fact, be utopic in some ways. Um, so we also want to realize that doing something in secret against our partner is not queer ethics and queer sexuality as Warner is defining it here. Mm -hmm. I also think about in Somerville, Massachusetts, they passed a city ordinance that said that they were going to extend protections, rights, and responsibilities that the city grants to married couples, that is straight or queer couples, they were going to extend those things to polyamorous couples or couples who are in non-traditional relationships, domestic partnerships and the like. 
But this is the first time in which a city wanted to extend benefits to polyamorous couples. And mm -hmm. in talking to friends that I have who are involved in polyamorous relationships, they talk about the effort that is needed and the transparency that is required and the integrity that would be is sine qua non in order to have these kinds of complex relationships because jealousy and feelings of insecurity can easily creep in, which is why so many people avoid such things. They want to be monogamous because you're pledging your entire self to another person. And I personally find this very compelling too. But I do think that it is worth considering, considering what would a future look like that isn't beholden to shame and is open to a world of clear communications about our desires, about our sex experiences, and with our partners about what we might want from sexual relationships across a field of social relations. So Michael Warner is really challenging us, that is queer folk and cisgender heterosexual folk to think about whether marriage should be a priority for them. Warner writes on page 131, so I have my doubts when legal scholar Cass Sustein, for example, argues that gay marriage would redress gender inequality by subverting traditional marriage, making it no longer the heterosexual matrix of women's subordination. This view enjoys great uh, popularity among lesbian and gay apologists for marriage, including Evan Wolfson and Nana Hunter. And not without reason, Hunter is undoubtedly right to claim that same-sex marriage would further weaken the model of subordination that has typified marriage. If marriage were not necessarily heterosexual, people could more easily view it as an equal partnership. This is to say only that same-sex marriage might improve things if not for queers, then indirectly for women married to men. What do you think about that, Amy? Well, I do think this is interesting. This is one that I, this is a quote that I had pulled out as well. I think we both did because this is coming up in conversations that I'm having with my friends, actually increasingly frequently when we're talking about dynamics between heterosexual spouses in marriage and I mean, really almost all, if not all of my, the people that are in my daily life are heterosexual couples. And so, we're, but we're always trying to unpack these patriarchal dynamics within our marriages. That's not, that's not true. Maybe I would phrase it better by saying like these gendered dynamics within our marriages and, and some of our assumptions were, we're questioning like, when, when we're thinking like, well, the man does this and the woman does this, which is really strong in my faith tradition, someone will say like, well, how would a same-sex couple navigate this? And it's kind of, again, because <laughs> Mormons tend to be like way behind the rest of the world. That's like a new question for us, but it does change the landscape. It does change the conversation to have that increasingly be in our consciousness to think like, we don't need to take for granted these traditional gender roles anymore because we know more same-sex couples and like, well, how do they do it? What's, there's no expectation about which partner is going to cook or which partner is going to, you know, drive the carpools and which partner is going to go to the parent-teacher conferences and um, which partner is going to be able to say, well, my job, you know, 
I'm getting a promotion and I really want to move to Chicago. And the other partner doesn't like, how do you, who has the Trump card (laughs) in a same sex couple? And so those unions are by, by definition, really, they, they cannot be, they can't be a gendered hierarchy if they're the same, if they're the same gender, the same sex, right? No one has a, no one has the traditional Trump card. So. Right. And and now the queer community is not all the same and we can't speak generally about all queers within the community because some might adhere to more traditional gender roles while many decide to reject them. But it is a choice that same-sex couples do encounter for themselves and they're able to talk through and make a decision for themselves which aspects of family life will they choose as an individual in a marital relationship. But you're absolutely right what you're saying, that you are troubling heteronormative temporality when you start to ask the question, so I wonder what a same-sex couple would say about this or how they would work through this challenge or problem. In that way, you're inviting a conversation for the queer temporalities that we're trying to envision here. We're saying, is there another way of doing this? Is there another way of living the good life? Is there another way of ordering our existence on this planet? So that's Mm -hmm. exactly what you're doing. We're using a fancy term to talk about it. We're talking about heteronormative temporalities and queer temporalities. But that, what you just said, is those baby steps to getting to where Warner wants us to go, which is to Mm. really rethink the whole enchilada. <laughs> so, um, do you recall my implication from a lesson in the previous episode? And of course you do, because you said it was one of your takeaways of the mm-hmm. previous episode. If feminists care about eradicating patriarchy, they must think intersectionally and approach the dismantling of heteronormativity as ardently as they would the dismantling of gender inequality. And as I said, to the queers listening, my fellow brothers, sisters, and queer persons, for our part, queers must all be feminists. The hope is that not only will marriage equality further egalitarianism for women in heterosexual unions, but that the furtherance of LGBTQ rights will contribute to breaking down patriarchy for the reimagination of ways of being in the world, being social beings, being persons who fall in love, being persons who procreate, being persons who share resources together, build futures together, raise children together, for people coming together to live through old age and to support one another in the elderly twilight years and people who see each other pass on to the next plane of existence. But but really, it's asking us to come together to think about many ways that we can be in the world instead of being so straightjacketed by this one temporality. So can I ask a question then? Sure. So I guess my next question is, and as I did say on, on the previous episode, that I feel like enlisted in you know, as a feminist, meaning a person who believes in egalitarianism and wants a better world for everyone, what should be the ethical and political agenda for the queer liberation movement now, according to Professor Warner, I guess? Sure. Yeah. And I do think that we both happened upon this passage 
as well. Mm-hmm. This is a passage which comes from page 146, and then I'll expound mm-hmm. on that. It is possible to have a politics in which marriage could be seen as one step to a larger goal and in which its own discriminatory effects could be confronted rather than simply ignored. I can at least imagine a principled response to this challenge that would include ending the discriminatory ban on same-sex marriage. And of course, when Professor Warner was writing this text, marriage equality as a national civil right had not yet been secured. So fast forward 15 years later, and we have marriage equality in the United States. So Professor Warner, we did that. He says... It could not be a program that said simply that marriage is a right or a choice. It would have to say that marriage is a desirable goal only insofar as we can also extend health care, tax reform, rights of intimate association extending to immigration, recognition for joint parenting, and other entitlements currently yoked to marital status. It would have to say that marriage is a desirable only insofar as we can eliminate adultery laws and other status discriminatory regulations for sexuality. It might well also involve making available other statuses such as expanded domestic partnership, concubinage, or something like PACs for property sharing households, all available both to straight and gay people alike. Above all, a program for change should be accountable to the queer ethos, responsible to the lived arrangements of queer life, and articulated in queer politics. So he is actually really specific about how we might all be able to get on board with this agenda, which I fully realize to some of the audience members might seem outlandish, might seem a bridge too far. But that's what theory does. That's what queer theory is doing. It's challenging us in our assumptions to think about things differently, to abandon or at least put at arm's length heteronormative temporality and contemplate and even potentially try to live out queer temporalities. So Warner wants to return to the riots of Stonewall and their aftermath where we could reimagine a new social order with rainbow temporalities, hmm. queer public, if you will, queer publics of ever widening circles of care, pleasure, and material support. These things would usher in a new way of being human on a planet beset with climate collapse, human rights violations, and staggering income and wealth inequality. Now, I mean, in a way, what the hell do we want with normal really anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Normal might very well doom us and what is happening with ourselves and on this planet. So this new social order starts with an unbridled embrace of Eros, according to Warner. Sex in all of its many forms as a model for the embrace of all the ways we are beautifully unique in this world and how we might reconfigure and reestablish ways of being in the world. Hmm. So that's Warner's charge to us. And I'm not someone who easily embraces utopic thought. Warner is a challenge to me because I want to think about the practicalities of politics. I want to think about um, 
the technocrats among us who are trying to solve the problems in our midst. And um, it's, it's sometimes hard to hear Warner say these things, but then also I fall back on my Christian upbringing, which told me that the crucifixion was not the end of the story, that there is going to be a resurrection, that in mm. the resurrection, there is hope for new life, for mm. a new planet. That's what the book of Revelation says, that there's going to be a recreation of the heavens and the earth in the, um, the end times. So I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I should try to channel a little bit more of my Christian tradition to say what Warner is talking about here actually could be more possible than I realize. And we will talk about that on the next episode too. different people's arguments for or against a future oriented, hope oriented outlook, right? In what to expect next for or what to work toward, I guess, what to work for and work toward for the LGBTQ community and that there are different visions for that. But I share, I mean, I, I share your disposition and, and a chosen philosophy also of hope. Um, and a future orientation. But I mean, with Warner and Edelman and Munoz and this whole thing, I guess, I mean, as we wrap up this episode today, I, I guess my, again, I just, I'm in and out of like, yes, yes, yes. I'm with you. Whoa. I'm not with you anymore. <laughs> but then like when I, you know what I mean? Like you got sure. me, you got me, you lost me. You right. got me, you got, you lost me. But I think even in those moments of you lost me, um, I still am trying, you know, who came to my mind when you were reading the last quote was um, Abigail Adams in the 18th century and how forward thinking and evolved she was in so many ways. But then if you read anything that she wrote about like interracial relationships, it just is it wounds your heart to see that in certain ways she couldn't envision um what we would consider like the only just and charitable and, and ethically viable way of seeing like <laughs> racial relations. She wasn't there, man. She was not there mm. in the 18th century. And so but I just thought, you know, looking back, you know, a hundred, 200 years from now, when my descendants, if they were to look back at me and my, you know, these recordings perhaps and things that I've written, there will be blind spots and there will be ways that I haven't evolved yet. And so I'm, I'm trying to hold an open mind and an open heart, even when I'm uncomfortable hmm. and just be curious. And so because I am straight, I have to also hold in check this idea that in my opinion or in my posture that I would have the right to proclaim what would be acceptable for queer people to do. Do you know what I mean? Because that's mm -hmm. that's the historical, that's the the matrix of of power that would put me in the position of saying, well, now like like I have some moral authority to tell <laughs> you know, Warner or anybody else, like, nope, nope, tisk tisk, you've gone too far. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that sure. I have no right to do that. And so I'm just trying to hold an open mind and see where the world goes and see what feels right to me in this moment, acknowledging that I might be right about things in the end and I might be wrong about them. And I'm just trying to be open to it all. Anyway, thank you for, as I said, like bringing this book into my life and helping us um, understand it and think through these issues today on this episode. I so appreciate you, Matthew. And it was just a pleasure again to have you 
be our teacher and our guide today. Well, again, I'm very thankful to be in this conversation with you, Amy, and I do look forward to the fourth and final episode where we'll bring this to a conclusion. Before I introduce next week's texts, I want to add an addendum to this episode, which I'm recording a few weeks after Matthew and I finished the conversation that you just heard. So in this discussion, Matthew and I talked about the shame that many or even most LGBTQ persons feel as they grow up and discover their identity. And so I want to mention two films that I saw after we had this conversation that were incredibly helpful. First, the Pixar film Luca, which I thought was a powerful way of representing the discovery of identity that is not considered normal in society. Um, This movie was so creative and so masterfully done. And I really felt like it was, you know, in conversation with these issues that Michael Warner talks about and that Matthew and I talked about in this episode. And then the second recommendation is the Netflix film Pray Away, which was co-produced by my friend and previous reading partner, Jen Lee Smith. And she mentioned it on her episode on This Bridge Called My Back, but it hadn't aired yet on Netflix. And... I just want to highly, highly recommend this film. I mentioned conversion therapy on this episode that you just heard, but again, I hadn't seen Pray Away yet when I recorded this episode with Matthew. And so to learn more about conversion therapy and many other topics having to do with the LGBTQ community, please watch this extremely important documentary. Matthew also watched it. He and I discussed it, and he also said it was just an absolute must-watch. So please watch Luca and watch Pray Away. And then in preparation for next week's episode, look up the books that we'll be discussing next week. There are two of them. They're called No Future Queer Theory and the Death Drive by Lee Edelman. And the second book is Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity by Jose Esteban Munoz. I would say that both of these books are really challenging reads. They also contain some pretty explicit sexual content. And so I would recommend reading them if you're up for a challenge. It's really, really dense academic language, especially the Edelman I found really hard to understand. And it just like is way, way outside of my comfort zone for you know, a person like me. But if you are really interested in queer theory and you're up for a challenge, Please go ahead and get these two books. They were really fascinating. I learned a ton. And then, of course, as always, whether or not you read them, we will guide you through a great discussion, and especially Matthew is such a masterful teacher. So it promises to be a fantastic discussion next week of No Future, Queer Theory, and the Death Drive, and Cruising Utopia, the then and there of queer futurity, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.